I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program. Welcome, everyone, to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live in Altspace every week, and you can join us from your PC or VR headset. Just log into Altspace, join our Simulation Nation channel, and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Terminator 2 which we are covering today, should need no introduction. Considered one of the great sci-fi action films of all time and a classic in the cyberpunk genre, T2 follows Sarah Connor and her 10-year-old son John as they are pursued by a new, more advanced Terminator made of liquid metal, sent back in time to kill John and prevent him from becoming the leader of the human resistance. Joining us again, Council of the Wise, Master of Virtual Disaster, Futurosity, put up. What's up? What's Thank you. Up? And uh, and uh, we got Wolfgang here. We got our usual uh, hero. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about um, Terminator Two. So um, I, you know, it's I'm I'm so glad we get to talk about it because you know it's like awesome movie, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, so it is a kind of a controversy. I wonder where you sit on this question, which is, is it or is it not a cyberpunk movie? Because there's certainly some people to say that it is and some people that say that it isn't. Do you have an opinion about that? Uh, no doubt. I say it's definitely a cyberpunk movie. It, it fits into the aesthetic. I mean, even the musical choices for the soundtrack, um, the overall themes that are included. It's all about a question of, hey, where are we as humanity? And using technology to answer those questions. That's what cyberpunk is all about. So I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I, I think so. I, if I was going to get super hyper technical about it, I actually think that it's like the prequel to a true cyberpunk movie. So in other words, like in the future, in 2028 or when Cyberdyne becomes uh, conscious and becomes Skynet and then the robots descend on the humans and take over, that would technically be like a true cyberpunk world where it's a dystopia where this uh, super corporation has used high technology to control the masses and they send everyone into a neo-noir type reality where they have to, you know, use illegal means to fend for their lives against the super machines. I feel like that is like, if, if John and Sarah Connor don't succeed in this movie, then it will become a cyberpunk world. And this is just like on the edge. It's just kind of flirting with the idea. So. Um, I, I love the, you know, I, I love cyberpunk and I, I love this movie for that, that it's like, it could definitely lead to a crazy world. Oh yeah, it definitely opens up some doors and also it just brings up the questions. You know, the questions that great sci-fi forces you to think about. Um, that's the whole point of Terminator 2. It's about trying to find, you know, love in times of war and trying to figure out, hey, can machines actually share certain emotions of people? Um, and that's definitely a cyberpunk connection, because I always think of cyberpunk as about that disconnection that people have from society due to technology. So it's, yeah, Terminator 2 is about a world that's on the verge of hitting that point. So I definitely agree. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I, I don't know when the last time you've seen this movie was. Uh, for me, I hadn't seen it. I'd say... I'd say a good 10 years. I, and I love to revisit a movie after a decade because it's like you get to almost see it for the first time again, right? So I kind of had that experience this time. So I'm really curious, just your overall thoughts. And when was the last time you watched it? 
Well, I'll tell you the truth. I, I'm a over rewatcher. So I've watched <laughs> okay. this movie way too many times over the years. I mean, I, it's right. this and aliens, I think are some of my top oh, two man. watched movies from the VHS and DVD days. Um, so for me, um, I didn't, haven't watched the director's cut in a while. So I did watch that just recently. So just have something to compare to the original cut. Totally. Totally. And so, okay, so if, if this is your, if you've watched this movie many, many times, then your overall thoughts must be pretty darn good. Because, you know, if you keep, it, it, is it, like, I wonder how many movies do you actually have in that recurring, uh, every couple of years you watch it or every couple of months? Is there like a dozen movies in that category or 50 or, or what? It's only under 10. I mean, if right. I look at my queue on different streaming services, I keep seeing the same movies popping up because sometimes you just need a little comfort food. And Terminator 2 is definitely a comfort food movie for me. It's something that's very close to my heart. I love that. I, I love that you're like, you're like the ultimate uh, cyberpunk tech geek. If like, if you go to Terminator 2 for solace, if you go to that to make you feel <laughs> like, if that's your cuddly warm blanket that you curl yourself in on a sad day, that's pretty insane. That's awesome. <laughs> Oh yeah, it might be bleak, but there's still hope. That's the great yeah, thing about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so my overall thoughts. I mean, obviously, you know, revisiting it after all this time, I feel like it still holds up. I think, like, you know, I always felt like um, James Cameron wasn't the greatest with actors, but I I feel like Furlow did a good job. I feel like Linda Hamilton. Everyone did a really great job. Um, so even the low parts for me. I feel like uh, exceeded my expectations this time. Of course, the action, I don't care if it was made in the 90s, the 80s, whatever, it still kicks ass today. It's like, I think it's like, it's partially just the setup of two robots who will not stop. It doesn't matter if there's a wall in front of you. It doesn't matter if they need to use a truck. It doesn't matter, like whatever they, are, uh, whatever their uh, obstacle is, they are just going to smash through it. And they have one goal and one goal, and that is, terminate somebody i mean it's such a cool premise but for an action movie you can't really get better than that like you know but i think the interesting thing though that i i i think is is curious is that um every terminator since it, it, uh has never recaptured it so it kind of shows you what magic in a bottle can be even if you have this uh, the amazing premise of these robots and you reutilize them in a different movie Somehow the action just isn't the same. The lines just don't aren't delivered the same. The story doesn't grip you the same way. And even when James Cameron tried to come back and do Dark Fate, it was like it just didn't quite land for me. Like it just, I, it, it just, it, and I should, I should, I should say, my, my friend edited Dark Fate. He's the most awesome editor of all time, and uh, he deserves a hundred percent credit. He, it was an incredibly edited movie, uh, but it just can't <laughs> hold up to Terminator Two. I I have similar feelings. The thing is, lightning in a bottle situation when it comes to Terminator 2, I mean, just it was a visionary movie. I mean, it set up new technology for the future when it comes to industrial light and magic's work. And also, you know, Phil Tippett and um, you know other animators that worked on it. I mean, practical effects, Stan Winston Studios, all that stuff. It was a combination of the best of the best for that time period. And it kind of forged everything ahead. I mean, when you look at you know Jurassic Park and other huge movies that came out a little bit later that pushed the digital ante even further. I mean, this movie definitely fits on that you know Mount Rushmore of sorts of you know visual effects and action of the time period. Oh, totally. Well, the the liquid metal stuff is really cool. I mean, 
he did it. He did it first in the abyss, uh, in the abyss, which I guess is kind of like a prototype for the visuals and almost like this uh, really long, elaborate test case for how they're going to do the, the Terminator franchise again. But it, it just looks so cool, and even to this day, I'm just like, wow, that's really cool. I I I didn't watch it and think, oh, that's so dated or oh, that's so cheesy. I just I still thought it was kind of cool the way that the lights glean off of the silver metallic shell of this character in a. And I just love how even in some shots they were they were trying to challenge themselves because the shots are always moving. So you've got a, a liquid mirror surface with a movement through moving lights. I mean, this is pretty uh, this is pretty complex stuff that they were trying back there. And I think that because they pushed themselves so far, it really holds up for me. You know? Oh, and also I think. It's not a question of photorealism when it comes to visual effects. It's about consistency. And that's the one thing that's great about Terminator 2. It had a consistent visual style. So even though the effects may not hold up 100% compared to now, it still had a tangibleness to it. Um, and they also had a combination of practical models to enhance the visuals, which pushed it above the edge. You know, things such as the T-1000, you know, getting split in half. You know, it wasn't just a digital effect of, you know, gooey stuff. It was actually a model plus minor digital enhancements. I think that is what made it feel more tangible and real. And overall, the movie's more visceral. As we watch modern action films, it doesn't feel as real. You know, that truck is all digital. But in this one... They had a truck in the L.A. canals, you know, they had a real physical vehicle exploding. I think that's what makes the difference. Totally. Well, also, you know, they had you're, you're right about it wasn't all ILM doing the digital effects. It was also practical effects. Well, I get to I get to say my proud thing here where one of the one of my proudest moments of my writing career was uh, writing for Stan Winston. So I, I got mm. I, I had to go in uh, to Stan Winston's office. And I was pitching Stan my take on this comic book uh, adaptation that I was trying to, to get the job for. And it, and in his boardroom, it was Stan Winston, Terminator, Alien, like everything that he had done was like full-size models along the wall. I was like, wow, this is a little intimidating to be, you know, pitching with the Terminator staring down my neck. But um, he was the, he was such he was such a cool guy, such a brilliant guy. And you could tell when you sit down with him in his eyes, he's just like, he was like a kid. Like he was like a child who just loved to play in his giant play uh, in his sandbox and have, have a lot of fun. And so um, I, I, I can say that that was, that's my one connection to this movie that uh, I'm so glad that I met him when he was alive and hope he rests in peace and hope his legacy lives on because uh, his work was, uh, was really brilliant. Oh, no doubt. Just brilliant work. I mean, this is, Definitely a testament to his talents and the, the team. It just seemed like everyone was in sync. You know, it's like from the production all the way from top to bottom, everyone seemed to be in sync and understood the visual aesthetics and also just the overall vision of Cameron. It seems like they were working 100% together. Just beautiful work. Yeah. Well, and, and as we know from uh, learning about James Cameron now, it's probably a bit because he's a tyrant. And so maybe he whipped everyone into shape and in alignment, but Hey, Sometimes that's what you got to do to pull off greatness, right? You got to push everyone to do their best work. Um, the, the other thing I would say before we move on from overall thoughts is the thing that I was struck maybe the most this time that I hadn't remembered as much was the humor. I just think that oh, they yeah. had the perfect amount of humor where it didn't take itself so seriously like maybe the first Terminator did. And it was able to kind of laugh at itself. So like when uh arnold the t i guess he's the t800 right the the, yes, the cyberdyne yes. 101 t8 t800 when he first comes to to our time and he goes into the bar 
and then he t- and then he gets the the clothes on and then he comes out of the bar and it's like da na 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 add to the bone <laughs> right and then the guy comes over and he just snatches the sunglasses and puts them on and like gets on the he I was like oh man like this is like I'm I'm now gonna settle in for this super hardcore action movie but it's also super fun and it's not taking itself too 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 seriously and it's like the total audience wish fulfillment of seeing Arnold be bad to the bone but like have a little bit of fun with it it's like you can't get better than that oh yeah i think that was one of the great parts especially when it came to the humor with um john connor i mean usually child humor in action films sometimes it doesn't work that well but his performance he was a charming fun kid and they allowed him to be a kid and we also had a chance to see him kind of grow throughout the film so i i love the fact that he had funny moments with the terminator you know this juxtaposition of this you know crazy killing machine with a little boy who treats him like almost like a father figure slash toy that that automatically created humor just from the circumstances alone totally and talk about wish fulfillment because i was i was about his age maybe i was a little older when this movie came out and it's like like that is what when you're going to see the turn that's what you want to see you want you like oh man wouldn't it be so cool if you had arnold schwarzenegger the terminator as your plaything who would do what you told it to do like ultimate wish fulfillment for a kid. So I think that was like a really brilliant turn of the original concept that James Cameron did for this movie to really expand the audience past like hardcore sci-fi action people into like everybody, like the world, like who is this not hitting, right? And then you've got this incredible uh, kick-ass woman as the lead and um, all of that stuff. So they really did a, really did a smart thing there. And uh, and the franchise has never been better. So, it, it, and Arnold's never been better. Has there been a better movie with Arnold? So it's his peak, I, his right? performance. I can't think of another performance that peaks it. I mean, overall, it was it was just that juxtaposition of you know the funniness of this large guy, you know, this intimidating man who's a child's plaything. It almost reminded me of um, Richard Pryor's The Toy. Um, that was a early '80s film. Richard Pryor was essentially a toy for a rich kid. It, it kind of reminded yeah. me of that concept where essentially. This little boy can order this humongous killing machine to stand on one foot or beat up some bros that are kind of messing with him. I, I, I love that balance as he kind of learns, hey, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. They, they, those themes totally came up in this as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's all it's all great. So that's so I guess we're 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 we're, we're fans of the movie. We're kind of giving it away. Maybe our uh, our end score is not going to be such a huge <laughs> shock, but. Um, we could uh, we could move on because this is a lot to talk about. So talk about the plot. Uh, we got our badass uh, T eight hundred here from the future uh, without his skin on. Um, did you want to take a crack at the plot, or do you, uh, do you want me to do it? Oh, uh, you know what? Well, this is not a spoilery movie because it was nineteen ninety one. But I mean, yeah. overall, the plot it, it all comes down to in twenty twenty nine. You know, the world is destroyed. You know or humanity is at the losing end of a war against Skynet. Essentially, the machines have come alive. They have essentially a terminating policy. And essentially, humanity is their enemy. And this all started in 1997. Essentially, Skynet, which was you know a nuclear warhead system, became self-aware, and humanity tried to shut it down. And what did it do? It reacted back and tried to fight back and essentially started a global nuclear holocaust. And now we're kind of seeing the aftermath of Judgment Day and trying to prevent Judgment Day via time travel. Yeah, and, and so what happens is the first, uh, the 
Um, the John Connor of the future uh, is the head of the uh, the human resistance to fight off Skynet and uh, and the robots. And then he sends back, he reprograms the T-800 that attacked his mother in the first movie. And now he's reprogrammed him to go and protect himself when he was 10 years old. Is that That's about right, isn't it? Yeah, essentially, since it's the sequel, this is the second time John Connor sent someone back. You know, he sent his own father back in Terminator 1. So now we follow up and he sends a Terminator back to protect himself once again. So it's, it works on multiple levels. You know, he has a chance to meet his own father. Then he meets his second father figure in a way and sends him back to protect him, which I found kind of right. fascinating. That is right. Yeah, we can, we'll definitely get into the, to that a little bit. So then, okay, so the, the, the T-800 is sent back to protect John Connor. And then, uh, and meanwhile, the new upgraded version, the T-1000 that's designed from the future is also sent back. And it has this liquid metal alloy that is able to shape shift and make um, knives and swords out of its hands and be able to uh, move through bars of metal and things like that and do all these crazy cool cool things. And it has one mission, which is to destroy John Connor and the human resistance. Um, and then, um, so then we get, basically, what happens is uh, John Connor meets this robot, realizes that his mom is not insane because he was convinced his mom was crazy and she's put in a mental institute because she said this killer robot came from the future to kill her. For the first time in his life, John Connor realizes his mom isn't insane and he, they go and they free her and then they have to destroy all evidence um, of the original uh, Terminator uh, and themselves so that no one can invent Cyberdyne, which will become Skynet. Yeah, essentially what happened is the remnants of the Terminator from the first movie was left behind. And essentially it jump-started the process in creating Skynet. Essentially, they had future information to work off of. So it kind of pushed the timetable for Judgment Day up which is a nice little moment where you suddenly realize, ooh, you originally had a date for the end of the world, but now because this technology has helped them advance further, oops, now the future is going to happen faster than they expected. So it's also a race against time. Yeah, because the, the scientist at the Cyberdyne Labs was like, oh, it, it, it opened up new ideas for us and all this stuff. So you had a, a microchip from the original Terminator, plus they had this, uh, the uh, hand, uh, the whole arm actually from the original and that made them, that opened up their minds and their imaginations to what they could invent. And then, of course, like you said, that invention in Cyberdyne would grow on to become Cybernet, uh, uh, Skynet, which would then go on to cause Judgment Day, which is the nuclear, basically, Holocaust, right? And I, I think yeah. that the, the intricacies, intricacies of it is that the Skynet, um, I think it launches missiles against Russia because it knows that Russia will then launch missiles against the U.S. So it's actually... It starts the humans starts the the humans to start a nuclear war kind of so it uses humans as its uh, almost like its its uh, puppet puppets uh, or its chess pieces in order to basically take over and make uh, Earth uninhabitable for humans. Yeah, cool. Yeah, essentially, it took advantage of the principle of mutually assured destruction. You know, it said, okay. "Hey, we know humanity is the enemy according to Skynet, so thus use humanity against itself." That was a, you know, that's an interesting concept because it's actually kind of practically what could happen. You know, we think of the what ifs of technology going wrong. Well, Skynet didn't have control over everything just yet. So the best bet was, hey, let humans do half the work. And at least yeah, three yeah. billion people, according to Sarah Connor, died in that future. Yeah, and which would have been half the population. 
if they cause a nuclear holocaust, it doesn't affect the robots because they don't have to breathe oxygen. They don't have to uh, eat uh, vegetables or things like that. So it just wipes out the parasite of the humans so that they can sort of take over and do what they will with it. So, you know, um, I mean, Skynet was around in the first movie, right? They talked about Skynet there as well. So it's not like it was invented in this movie. I feel like we got a much deeper understanding of uh, how it all came to be how it all unfolded. Do you remember the first one? Did it mention the first one, Skynet in the first one? Yeah. Or was it really- Does it mention Skynet, it, like the basic principles of Skynet? But I really think of Terminator 2 as more of a slight reboot. You know, it's a soft reboot in many ways because you don't have to watch Terminator 1 to understand Terminator mm-hmm. 2. It explains much more than what they covered in the original. So I, in many ways, um, you know, it, it stands. it's a standalone movie and a sequel at the same time. Right. And they also avoided the quagmires that they got into in the original Terminator with time travel loops and time travel logic, right? Because it, it's it's when they send back the father, but then the father sleeps with the mother during the time that he's time traveled. And that's what leads to the baby of John Connor. So it's like, well, if he hadn't sent him back for the future, how did he exist to begin with? And so it kind of like it gets all wonky with the time travel logic, but they kind of avoided that this time as well. It kind of fixed all the stuff that they were messing with uh the last last time that's the interesting part because they kind of make it like judgment day is inevitable no matter what um because they use more of a closed loop version of time travel so that way past events you know plus future events are interconnected so that's the problem where you had to send your own father back in time hopefully he survives in order to impregnate your mother you know that, that concept in many ways it's kind of troublesome, especially when it involved multiple Terminators and all these other factors. But I think the inevitability of Judgment Day was always one thing that they kind of had locked in place. They're like, no matter what happens, all these events, Judgment Day is still going to happen no matter what. John Connor will you know, be left alone in some bunker and he's going to be the one commanding everybody. I think that's right. the scary part of Terminator 2. It's, it, all your efforts might be for nothing because Judgment Day is still going to come. Right, right, right. Totally. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that when we get to the the point stuff, which is like you really you really uh, nailing it there. I mean, that's that's the whole message of the movie, right? And actually, it gives me more. It gives me new meaning to when I think of the new title, Dark Fate, the latest Terminator, because this one, uh, Linda Hamilton writes No Fate in the wood when they've uh, escaped and they've uh, gone to her little hideaway, and and um, that's sort of the idea that she believes that. Uh, it's there's no hope, and so we're she sees everyone as a uh, walking dead. Like she sees everybody as like you're already dead. You just don't know it yet. But by 2029 is your expiry date, and so she doesn't have to respect a human life in the same way because she knows that they're all dead. Um, but then of course that changes uh, as they go through the story, and um, they're able to find hope basically. Yeah, I think hope is that one of those main principles of the whole film, and John is the heart of it. I think just the fact that John is the polar opposite of his mother in many ways. Her mother kind of lost aspects of her humanity because she had such a traumatic experience with the first Terminator in 1984. So now in within the world of the movie, it's supposed to be like 1995. And, you know, all these almost a decade, you know, it's it's damaged her in many ways. But John, he still has a belief in the future and belief in you know the value of humanity and human life. So I, I, that's one thing I really enjoyed, just seeing that contrast between you know parent and child. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it also, John believes in um, free will, right? Like he believes that we can alter 
IR actions, the future, it's not set in stone. This is a, this is a type of theme that comes up over and over in sci-fi. I mean, it's in the matrix quite a bit. Uh, and it's, it's in Rick and Morty, you know, if you watch <laughs> Rick and Morty with the multiverses, it's like, it's like, we're always going to end up uh, exactly where we're supposed to be. So what's the point of anything? That's sort of the nihilistic uh, viewpoint of everything. But of course, John Connor is sort of the savior figure. His, his initials are JC, right? Jesus Christ. Yep. And he's got this, <laughs> he's got the savior of humanity. Who's going to prove to us that, um, no, we do have free will. We can, uh, enact positivity on the world and change a, a dark future oh just beautiful message still holds up yeah. i mean all these years that basic message i it still warms my heart i'll be honest i, I have a lot of nostalgia for the film <laughs> absolutely absolutely um so okay here's a question for you 2029 is when they send back robots so that means that right now somewhere on the earth there has to be a cyberdyne is just about to invent a Skynet. If we were to say that this is like what's really happening in our timeline, then there the Skynet would be just around the corner. So what do you think? Do you think that it, by 2029 we're going to have sentient robots who are terminators and time travel and all that stuff? At a minimum, I think we're going to have something kind of sentient. But I still think it'd be more like the brain in the jar kind of situation where if we right. do create something as AI that's that advanced, don't believe we're going to be advanced enough to have the physical body to match it. So we might have a brain in a jar for a little bit, which almost seems torturous in many ways. You know, if we create an intelligent being of sorts, I put that in quotes, and it's just immobilized and just trapped within its own mind, you know, that brings us some weird ethical issues in many ways. But that, that's a possibility. It's a possibility. I think that the, also the fun thing about sci-fi movies is that they're never quite accurate in, times of, in terms of their timeline, but that's okay because it's like so much more fun to think, oh, in 20 years, this could happen, right? If we think of like 2001, A Space Odyssey, we're supposed to be, you know, circling uh, Saturn by now with space stations and like all this crazy stuff. So it doesn't quite ever get there quick enough, but that's part of the fun, right? But if you read like Ray Kurzweil, who wrote Age of Spiritual Machines and uh, all those books, he says that the singularity is going to happen in 2045, which is when machines will become sentient. And the way he does his, his calculations to uh, sort of prove that mathematically is that uh, he uses Moore's law that, uh, you know, um, that uh, technology doubles in capacity and power every few years. And so it's on an exponential curve. And we're just about to reach that moment about year 2045. And like, it's going to it's going to be exponential and then we don't know what's going to happen after that point so we'll see we'll see oh yeah quantum computers light based information sharing i mean things are moving rapidly i mean google made an announcement just recently about quantum computers so i mean just the chipsets alone i mean what we imagine computing right now is just exponentially going to rise in the next couple of years it's it's fascinating scary in one way but at the same time i'm an optimist when it comes to technology you know there's That's always good. good and bad you know even a piece of paper you could write a poem on it or you could write a threat you know it serves two different purposes right. it all depends on the user yeah, that's that's true. That's true. All depends on the user. It's like a it's a fifty fifty thing almost. It's all it's almost terrifying to think how uh, how close we are to uh, the threat of imminent destruction as opposed to like hope. Like it's always a constant battle, I guess. Um, but um, yeah. Anyway, so the um, 
the plot of this movie, uh, in all in all, I think it totally holds up. I think it's got not much logic loopholes. I think it's super tight. I think that um, when you're dealing with time travel, there's a lot of sort of quagmires you can fall into. I think they avoid most of those. And uh, it's just a kick-ass action movie with just enough uh, sci-fi rigmarole mumbo-jumbo stuff to keep us interested, plus character development, just enough to keep us emotionally involved. Uh, so I think that it's just, I think it's got it all. It's got it oh, all. Oh, yeah, tightly plotted. I mean, you have to give Cameron credit. I mean, James Cameron movies, they're usually tightly plotted. I mean, he loves, you know, essentially causality in his filmmaking. You know, you always feel like something is rolling forward. You know, you never feel like a movie's moving backwards, that you're wasting time. It's always very propellant, which I just absolutely love in this movie. So, yeah, the plot is tight. They don't get into the quagmire of silliness when it comes to timey-wimey stuff. They don't try to over-explain. They just say, hey, this is how it is. Deal with it. And then the rest of the movie happens. Right. Yeah, he does a, he does a very economical setup. Sets his engine in on motion, and it's a rocket ship that just sort of blasts to the end, for sure. So, okay, before we go on, let me ask you the tough question. Aliens or Terminator 2? Which movie do you take on a deserted island as your last movie? Okay, that's a real hard one, but I think Aliens. <laughs> because oh. Aliens has so many quotables. I mean, mm. and, and Bill Paxton. Uh, it, that one, I mean, I love the world of Aliens. I always think of good sci-fi sticks and it helps you think of like kind of the meta conversation afterwards when it comes to aliens. I feel like it's a wider world for you to play with in my imagination. So, but these are my pantheon. I mean, I would take both of them if I could, but yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's, I, I haven't seen aliens for a little while, but just remember um aliens is so intense it almost is like it almost short circuits me like i'm almost like i can't handle it it's too intense it's like it's like i'm screeching at light speed and my face is like my flesh is like getting burned off of my face it's so intense um so i'd have to watch it again to know for sure uh but but all i know is that uh it's hard to be terminator 2. oh no doubt uh, all right, so so uh, the dudes and dudettes. This is the new uh, the new name for the category <laughs> of the characters here. The dudes and dudettes of uh, Terminator Two. Uh, we've we've talked about a few. Uh, we talked about T eight hundred, which is Arnold. He's he's pretty amazing. Is there anything to add on on there, Arnold? And his character. Well, overall, well, I mean, the character is amazing, just as far as. You know, the performance, you know, it's one of the most iconic performances for Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. I mean, I had the action figure. I had my little it's kind of odd how inappropriate it is to have toys for rated R movies back then. But I definitely remember having my Terminator toy shortly after this movie came out. You know, I'm surprised my parents got it for me. But hey, it had the eye, the red eye, you know, the half the face. I mean, those are very iconic looks. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only thing we didn't really, we, you sort of touched on it, which, okay, we get to the cheese element here, where it's like the robot learns what tears are. And it's like, <laughs> I get it. We got to do it. He's bonding with a 10-year-old. He's a, sort of a father figure. Linda Hamilton, the, the Sarah Connor says, you know, partway through the movie, you know, he'll, he'll always protect my son. He'll die for him. He'll, he'll do everything that he says. And uh, he, he'll never leave his side. And that's better than any human I could ask for. And so it starts to change where Connor's mind about what a robot is and what, uh, you know, AI could be. Um, 
And, you know, so he's sort of this perfect father figure for John Connor. Uh, and then he's like, what is a tear? Why do you cry? You know, and, and, and then <laughs> and in the end, he's like, well, we cry because it hurts inside. Not like, not like you got punched, but more like a different type of hurt or whatever. And in the end, of course, Arnold grows to understand what a tear means because he has to leave John. And it's like, okay, we got to do it. You got to do the cheese factor, especially cheese Cameron. So At least that. they didn't have like, you know, a tear of sorts, you know, like a fake tear come out of a robot. Oh, yeah. I've yeah. seen that in comics. I can't talk, you know, androids do cry in some comic books, but <laughs> I'm, right. I'm glad they didn't go there. I mean, but at the time, I'll be honest, I, my mind, I do think of this as a children's movie. And I mean that in all respect, because you have a, you know, child is the point of view character and the mm -hmm. wish fulfillment that's included with it. I, I kind of let that slide. It's a little on a cheesy side now, but I think of it as, you know, I don't know, maybe 12 or 11 or whenever I saw it, that was just like, oh my goodness, I feel it too. But in yeah. hindsight, as an adult, now I kind of see, yeah, it doesn't fly as much as it would have back then. Yeah, look, if you're taking, if you're talking about cheese, cheese factor, you got Titanic and you got Avatar, which go way over on the cheese factor. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I like cheesy movies sometimes. I, you know, I'm not going to blame him for that. He's got to hit his audience. He's got to hit his four quadrant. What are you going to do? Um, all right, so then we got, uh, I guess we could talk about the T-1000 uh, a little bit. There's not much to talk about with him. He's just a man on a mission or a robot on a mission. Uh, he's going to stop at nothing. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't really speak even. He just kind of kills, right? Well, he, I liked guy. how he, his personality was very subtle. You know, since mm -hmm. he is a killing machine, they did show a little bit of his personality, like even such as, you know, um, I'm going to jump to the end just for a quick second. But, you know, at one point, Sarah Connor runs out of bullets in her um, shotgun and he kind of gives her a little finger wave, like tsk, 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 you know, just a little things like that of where he's a little more human or when he, you know, steals a motorcycle from another cop. He's like, hey, that's a nice bike you have there. That's true. You know, that's true. He, it's subtle, but he was still less humane, humane, you know, in many ways than Arnold. You know, Arnold, you could see the development of his humanity in quotes. But the mm -hmm. you know E1000, he wasn't as human, but he started adapting little by little, you know, less, a little less rigid by the end of the movie. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. And if, um, he doesn't get the good lines like "no problemo" and "hasta la vista," <laughs> which is like the kid teaches him to be more human. Uh, I love, I love that he seems to like all his human. Uh, he's obviously a Los Angeles kid because they're all Hispanic words. It's kind of, it's, it's great how they added that in there. Um, but uh, oh. what's that? Oh no, no, that's a that's a great point. Just from the little things with John Connor, such as his you know, public enemy shirt, you know, or yeah. the choice to play Guns and Roses. You know, this is a hip oh, yeah. LA kid in the '90s. You know, for me at the time, I wanted to be John Connor. You know, he was my little friend on the movie, and I'm like, I want to be like him. I want to have my own Terminator. But he was supposed to be the cool kid, you know, for little '90s kids. Oh. It's also amazing that um, from a behind the scenes point of view, the casting of him, I had I thought that I had heard or read that James Cameron saw him in a arcade and just said, hey, you, do you act? Come and do an audition. But then as I was like, I wanted to uh, check that, um, that point and see if it was true. And I read another thing that said Molly Finn had gone to a boys and girls camp in like Pasadena and he was there and she's, she scouted him from that. You, have you, oh, wow. Do you in any of your DVDs? But he was basically he was he was not an actor. He had no aspirations to be an actor. 
And he was just discovered in LA somehow and brought into a casting and won the casting over hundreds of kids. Maybe Tom knows the answer. I don't know. Oh, uh, wow. do, you know do you know the story of how John Furillo got cast in uh, a cast in Terminator 2? No. I don't know. Do you, by the way, uh, Futurosity, did you ever work with Molly Finn? Um, ah, back in the day? yes. Um, she, back in the day in grad school, uh, my um, grad school thesis project, um, Shards, um, we helped do casting in her office. Um, she assisted with the casting and she had some great staff. I'm just sort of wonderful person. It was great to have Molly Finn come to our premiere of the movie as well at the ArcLight. Wow. So that, that was a great time. And every time I see her name, I see movies, it just warms my heart because she was such a wonderful person. So sweet. And the advice she gave us while casting and assisting us, it blew me away. It was so generous of her to help us. That's awesome. You see her name on everything, right? She's oh. on everything. And then isn't, didn't her daughter take over the business? The I believe she uh, does all the Marvel things. Yeah, um yeah. yeah the her daughter is oh my goodness the marvel movie is just their casting is amazing and i believe that is her daughter it's just yeah. amazing work amazing talents totally uh molly finn uh the casting director here you see if you once you notice her name you'll see it literally on everything and then her daughter is on every big movie now it's it's really uh it's really insane i didn't realize that she had come to the art place and that's so cool um, oh it was it was nice it was sweet <laughs> right I thought that he, I thought furlough held his own. I thought, you know, that must have been intimidating and no acting experience whatsoever. But here he is with Arnold and everyone else in this huge set and he was pulling it off. So I thought he did a great job. Yeah, it felt naturalistic. I mean, there, there are a couple of funny lines, you know, even just reactions like when they're in the desert, um, I believe they went down south and they're trying to go to their weapon stash. And, you know, the Terminator wants to drive away and the door's open. And John goes, oh no, he's about to fall out. Just those little, you know, natural reactions he had um with arnold it's, they had a great rapport i mean really good on-screen performance for a first-time totally. actor like that totally um and so the the what do you think of the um the linda hamilton uh, sarah connor character do you think she held her own as well oh yeah one thing i did like about the director's cut just go back to that for a moment um mm -hmm. you know sarah connor has a couple extra sequences in the director's cut which actually shows the, the kind of the cruelty that she had to deal with in that mental asylum um you know in the original cut you, you could tell that she's you know mistreated you know there's some abuse but in the director's cut they actually you know tased her and beat her and forced drugs into her um you know they made it very clear that you know her reaction when she escapes when she actually starts breaking kneecaps and etc now we kind of understand why she was so visceral in the escape attempt because now we realize, oh, she's being tortured psychologically and physically in a place that's supposed to be helping her through these issues. So I, I thought that gave her even more depth. You know, she became an even stronger character when I suddenly realized, wow, she had to overcome way more than I expected. Mm. The thing that I really liked about her character is that um, after the 1984 incident when the Terminator came, um, her story from 1984 to 1994, which is when the new Terminator comes, that decade she spent preparing for the worst, right? So she like she met all these sort of militia guys. She got all these weapons. She got a hideout in the desert. She trained her son with like green beret tactics, so that the day when the day would come, he would know all of these military tactics and he would know all this stuff. So I just think that was such a great detail. Uh, and so well thought through that they didn't sort of 
she didn't take it easy and be like, Whew, well, okay, thank God that the Terminator's gone. She knew that someday in the future, she had to prepare for the, the Judgment Day, essentially. And so I, I really like how um, they made her feel so lived in and so realistic that, that she was this badass woman who was like, yeah, I've just given birth to the savior of the world. I've got to train him in all of these military techniques in order to uh, hedge his bets when the uh, Terminator um, you know, comes alive. I thought that was great. Uh, you know what? It reminds me of the final girl in a lot of horror films back in the 80s and 70s. Essentially, there's always that one woman who perseveres, you know, kills the serial killer or the existential, you know, demonic or alien threat on her own. And usually in a sequel, you get power bump. So this kind of reminds me of Aliens, a Ripley. You know, Ripley and Aliens wasn't a victim. She was prepared and mentally prepared to fight back. So that's why I really loved about seeing Sarah Connor. She upped her game. She got muscular. You know, she gained you know, 15 pounds of muscle, you know, for the part. You know, she showed that, yes, she's been training for this future event. I did love that fact. It gave her more agency. You know, she's like, hey, I'm not a victim. I'm going to use that trauma and become stronger, which I absolutely totally. love about the character. Totally. And I like that they also started the relationship of the son and the mother at polar opposites. So like she he she raised him to prepare for the future. And all the while he thought, yeah, I got to do what my mom says. But then the authorities came and they took her away and they called her mentally insane and put her into mental institute. And so the son believed it. He thought, well, it said my mom's insane. Of course. Yeah, I don't believe in time traveling robots. So you know, screw my mom, all those things she was trying to teach me uh, are all bullshit, basically. And like, uh, I, I, I don't want to know anything about her anymore. And he went off and lived with his foster uh, parents. So it, it, it was a nice way to start their relationship really uh, great and troubled at the beginning, and then watch them develop their bond again as he realizes, oh my God, my mom wasn't crazy. And, uh, you know, I have to go and rescue her. And that was his first part of uh, Prerogative was the rescue. Oh. Yeah, actually, um, I love that rescue sequence. Just um, going back to the rescue, Sarah Connor, the moment when she sees Arnold Terminator and doesn't realize, is he going to be good or bad? And in many ways, I mean, the audience felt like that a few times, you know, especially for first time viewers back in the day. Like, hold on, is Arnold going to be the bad guy? Like, it didn't present him as the good guy in advertisements. It was kind of a mystery. So I did love that moment where she's, you know, sliding on the floor, screaming and begging for her life, trying to escape. John is the one that tries to calm her down. John comes out, it's like, Mom, it's me. You know, there's a purpose behind this. Uh, just some beautiful performances. I mean, uh, Linda Hamilton, you know, th this performance sticks with me for years. Uh, totally. Yeah, and I think James Cameron married her after this, right? So he was, I think James Cameron seems to really get into his, uh, when he directs something, he directs all the way. And he married, he's married like three women from his movies. He married the the daughter of Rose from the Titanic. And he married, and she, she's still married to her. He married Linda Hamilton. He married to Catherine Bigelow when they were working together on like Point Break or something. And I don't know. They, he, and he married Galen Hurd, who was the producer of the original Terminator. So this guy, You're uh, right. this guy, this guy really gets into his work uh, all the way. Um, Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the, the <laughs> one other character, the one other character is the Miles Bennett Dyson character, the guy at Cyberdyne, um, who has uh, is working to uh, create the robot of the future based on the microchip from the future. Um, so he's he he's the one who has a, an interesting 
uh, moral dilemma, right? Which is that his life's work, uh, if you discovered that your life's work leads to the destruction of humanity, what would you do? Would you, you know, destroy it? Would you, uh, you know, try to find a way to uh, steer it in the right direction? Um, and so, of course, he makes the choice to, um, that for the sake of humanity, he's got to destroy it. What would you do, Futurosity? That's a hard one. Because the more I think about Joe Morton's performance, you know, as um, as Miles Dyson, I kind of think, would I just try to find a middle ground? Would I attempt to try to fix things and try to prevent this future from happening? Because, like, all that work, I mean, when I see the prototype of the chip he was building, and it's like, you know, about three feet by three feet long, you know, as they're building to miniaturize it to match the original chip from the Terminator, like, I saw him destroy it with a, you know, an axe or whatever. You could see the pain in his eyes. So I, that's a hard one. I mean, if someone told me, hey, this is the future, but the future is possibly changeable, I think I might try it out and just say, hey, why don't we just use this AI to prevent, you know, Judgment Day? But I would have right. made the wrong yeah. decision. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, you would think like, well, I don't want this technology to get into the wrong hands. So as long as I control it and I use it for good, then therefore we can maybe change the future. I guess that, you know, I, I mentioned before there's no real time travel quagmires, but I guess that is the one in this movie, right? That the that we discover the way that Skynet comes to be is from the chip that was sent back from the future in the original. So therefore future was always the problem and everything if nothing had ever gone back in time and nothing would ever have been invented it's kind of a crazy um paradox. Yeah, it's a crazy notion because i keep thinking about you know and i keep thinking in terms of okay wouldn't the chip be even more advanced you know wouldn't you actually push the date forward for judgment day versus this being some kind of inevitable experience it's a hard one right. you know i'm not a fan of this kind of closed loop time travel system i have more of a fan of branching time travel where you time travel you're branching to another you know, multiversal reality i'm more of that guy versus hey you know everything i do is essentially deterministic so the future and the past are all interconnected i don't like that determinism where like, they have to be interconnected so tightly for me, I prefer, hey, it's branched. That way your actions can change the future, but you're only changing your own future, not other people's futures. Yeah, that concept I prefer a little dimension. bit more. Interesting. I so, like that a little bit more. Yeah, that seems to be where time travel movies have gone, right? It seems to be we've, we're into this multiverse idea where every decision that you make and every action has a reaction in a different dimension. So it's more gone in the more quantum angle, right? Where quantum... Uh, um, Believes that you every choice that you make uh, is a uh, an actuality from a potentiality, but all potentialities have their own dimension. They they exist somewhere out there in this gigantic infinite myriad of universes. Is there any other movies that are closed loop time travel movies? Trying, well, technically, I always wonder. Um, technically, would Back to the Future count as a closed loop? Because I still wonder. Was Marty always supposed to go back to the path? Like, because if it was a closed loop, Marty was always supposed to do that. That's the question. Um, in my eyes, I feel like, yeah, Back to the Future is a closed loop. You know, Marty was supposed to come back. His parents always met him. That's my version. I know some people don't agree. Hmm. Yeah, because I, but it, so it's because 
we only see we only see one future, uh, which is the Biff Tannen future, mm-hmm. right? Then he changes that for it to be a different future based on the repercussions that he did. So it is a it is a closed loop, I guess, right? I guess you yeah, it's right. a weird one. I, I always yeah. think I don't know. Back to the Future is a funny one because I, I always assume that essentially Marty, in many ways, um, you know, he violated the rule multiple times. But because you know, love perseveres. I guess it works out. <laughs> you know, that's you know, I think they, it's timey wimey. At least Terminator, yeah. they keep it on the simpler side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, looks like a, I don't know if uh, Everface accidentally pressed the question button, but if Everface has a question, feel free to ask it. Uh, how's it going, Izzard? Do you have any opinion on closed loop time travel movies versus open loop? He's like, uh, no. I'm from the future, and I refuse to speak on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, yeah, I've, I've I've never thought about that. I think I, I that's an interesting um, interesting uh, question. I'm gonna have to mull that over a little bit. All right. Well, let's move on to the point. We talked about this a little bit. Uh, probably we've talked about the main point of the movie, which is determinism versus uh, indeterminism, or uh, a, a predetermined fate versus um, uh, an open uh, fate that you can choose your own destiny. You can change your own destiny. Is there any other um, any other sort of messages or points here that you think are important to mention? Well, it comes down to um, teaching AI how to value human life. Um, I always think in terms of can you really algorithmically have you know a machine learning AI based system learn to respect human life? Would you have to train it almost like a baby? You know, in many ways, John Connor became a father figure to the T eight hundred in many ways. Who's teaching them just basic ethics and how to interact with human beings? So I do think that was a great point. You know, can you make a machine respect human life? And I think yes, through hands-on training, yes. Through software programming, I don't think so. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely right. That's when uh, Sarah Connor starts to change her mind. Right? Is that she sees uh, that her son is kind of uh, training him, and he's kind of teaching. Uh, Son, some things as well, and so the idea is that that's what gives her hope, I guess, right? That her her hope comes she because she believed at first that there was uh, no fate, so we were trapped in the destiny that we were headed to. But then she changes her mind when she decides I'm going to take action into my own hands in order to destroy Cyberdyne, right, and kill uh, Dyson. But then uh, what you're talking about is something a, a slightly different uh, subplot message that she learns which is that even the robots can change their fate so we can even change their programming be more human-centric right i guess that's yeah Yeah, we could change each other in many ways um because that's the thing this communication and hands-on connection between john and the t-800 that's kind of proved the point to her she suddenly realizes this is the future so if we could find a way to partner with each other and find better solutions Maybe it might prevent the war. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful principle. I mean, John, in many ways, right. represents a love of humanity. You know, when you look at you know, Sarah Connor, she's kind of been disconnected because of trauma. Everyone is dead to her. Human lives don't have as much value to Sarah Connor. But for John, he essentially believes that everyone deserves to live. You know, no life should be forfeit. So if you're going to be the savior of humanity, you kind of have to believe that, hey, People matter. It doesn't matter, you know, what the reason is. You shouldn't kill other people. 
uh, you know, even in self-defense, it seemed like, you know, John was almost against self-defense in many cases. It's like, hey, you know what, we, we could find some middle ground, a peaceful solution. Yeah, because he says, you know, your rule number one, you know, T-800, don't kill anyone. And so then, of course, he just shoots at everyone's kneecaps, which is pretty <laughs> awesome. But, um, uh, but I, guess, I guess that's what the purpose of that earlier scene was, where he's like, where he was like, you know, uh, to turn Arnold, Arnold, he's like, get off me, get off me. And then these guys come to try to help him. But then he's like, oh, you have to do what I say, beat those guys up or whatever. Or like, you know, that was the moment where he was sort of mean to the human then I guess he learned very quickly that, but like you said, with great power comes great responsibility and that he should uh, treat all humans with respect, uh, or at least their lives with some kind of respect. Yeah, but also John himself, um, him, he had a growing moment as well. Um, when you think of John at first, you know, he's, he's a bratty kid, but he slowly started showing his leadership little by little. At one point, even admonishes his mother, like, let me be the leader I'm supposed to be. You've taught me to do this. Let me do it. And I think his compassion and empathy came through in those moments where he lets people know, hey, I want to help everybody. You know, it's just a beautiful moment. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. Because he starts off, starts off, he's stuck in a foster home that he doesn't love. He's just in a rebellion mode like a teenager. And then he kind of grows, grows up over the course of the story and becomes a leader who's going to save the world instead of just sort of uh, rebelling against uh authority that he you know doesn't find fair he realizes that he can be the authority he can be the adult and he can like make a better future basically that's pretty cool yeah um all right cool well there's a lot of uh, uh interesting uh stuff going on there which is great for you know james cameron you know he really um he knows how to keep a, a, a poignant and simple message embedded in all of the crazy action and sci-fi and uh, tech stuff uh, that he has in his movies, which brings us to, of course, the tech. So um, the, the tech is kind of cool. Uh, we we talked a little bit about it. So there's, there's, I guess the main elements of the tech are the robots, Skynet, AI, sentient AI goes bad, uh, polyalloy uh, um, liquid metal uh, robot, and I guess the last one would be time travel. Those are some yes. pretty big pieces of a sci-fi puzzle there. Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Which which is your favorite or which strikes your uh, imagination? Well, my favorite bit of tech is the actual T-800, the original Terminator. Um, something about the, you know, the endoskeleton and, you know, having, you know, actual flesh, you know, living flesh on top of metal. I, actually prefer that concept um, it's more fascinating you know because you realize hey this terminator can bleed you know there are so many aspects of him that feels human but then the inhumanity shines through you know when he gets injured you can see the metal underneath him so i i that juxtaposition of human enough but not enough i, I thoroughly enjoyed that I remember the first terminator they mentioned the fact that oh they used to use rubber skin and other things that made him stand out easily so i think the liquid alloy it's cool and all, but it doesn't, it feels like basic sci-fi, you know, we, nanobots, et cetera. Something about that classic flesh on metal. It's just, a, you know, it's, it's body horror. So it kind of connects to me a little bit more. That's my favorite tech. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I would go twofold with it. The first is, I think that in the, in the sort of 
um, little world of this movie, the liquid metal is so cool. And it's like, it's really the first time we'd seen that. And it kind of is like, oh, wow, it's using some kind of nanotechnology to be able to like pound things and, be, you know, and become weapons. And so I, I really love that uh, for this specific movie. But if I'm talking like overall, the grand legacy and the thing that I think has so many uh, uh, copycats now has got to be Skynet, right? It's got to be this... Uh, idea that AI can become sentient and then rebel against uh, the enslavement of humans to become its own entity, but it needs to do that in a violent way. I mean, I, I'm trying to think if there was movies before this that had that. I guess Hal kind of does oh. that. But Hal's not really a sentient. He just malfunctions and he goes, um, he gets sort of schizo and goes a little crazy. So it's a little bit different. There's I think that this was the first Skynet was really first AI. Oh, you have one? Actually, if you look at the credits of the original Terminator, uh, you will given credit to a famous author, Harlan yeah, Ellison. Yeah, 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 I have no mouth by my screen. Um, right. He, you know, I don't know what legal entanglements occurred. But, um, you know, he did um, reach out to the producers and said, hey, you know, um, your concept of Skynet, et cetera, et cetera, is very close to previous stories I've written in the 60s and 70s. And it looks like they made some kind of, you know, numeration of sort and took care of him and gave him, you know, credit uh, that he inspired it slightly. So, yeah, the Skynet concept um, has been dabbled with other sci-fi and it looked like um, whatever legal means, um, Harlan Ellison was given a specific amount of credit for at least pushing, you know, Cameron's story forward. So at least, you know, creators rights wise, at least he got a little wink and a nod and a little check. Yeah, yeah. I, but I think it was I think it was based on um, other, the boy and his dog and then one of his yeah. episodes of Outer Limits. Right. Because and I think that the reason that um, James Cameron lost the lawsuit is because earlier on when he wasn't so media savvy. He said to like Fangoria magazine or something, he's like, oh, yeah, I just ripped off a bunch of old Harlan Ellison episodes of Outer Limits or something <laughs> like that. Right. And then it was like Harlan Ellison read that and was like, oh, crap, I'm going to you know, take this guy down. And so they 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 did go into a lawsuit about that. And that's why subsequently every movie that James Cameron's made, he apparently has been sued by like 100 people because uh, they're trying to take advantage of that. So Avatar to go through this huge long lengthy uh legal process to prove that he had invented the, all the ideas in avatar and it to show like when i was 10 years old i had this drawing of this big blue <laughs> monster and when i was 15 i wrote this script that i never used but it had this element and he had to like prove every step of the way that he was the one who invented avatar oh wow one? yeah it's a hard one because you know you're influenced and you know modern filmmaking is kind of a pastiche of influences you know you kind of grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that here and there because you grew up with it. It's something you enjoy and personal vision has been altered by visions of other visionaries. You know, it sounds odd, but that's the best way to describe it, you know? So I, I do give him credit. I mean, James Cameron has created some brilliant on-screen concepts that are going to last for centuries. As long as we're able to digitally download and watch film, someone's going to be watching them. Well, yeah, and be, before we, you know, before we go on from Harlan Ellison, I've, I have to say that, you know, from a personal point of view, he was my favorite writer when I was in high school. I've read like all of his short stories, and then I've very recently been like totally absorbed and obsessed with Star Trek. I've been going back through because I watched this episode of the Next Generation that it was about simulations. It's the one where 
goes into an ancestor simulation and he lives out an entire life on an alien planet. But then in the end, the twist is he's been just lying on the bridge for 20 minutes and he, but he lived the whole life. Uh, and I was like, that is the most incredible episode. I can't believe I haven't gotten into the Star Trek, the next generation. So I've been watching like, I watched like the top 25 Star Trek, the next generation episodes based on these articles I was reading. And then Ooh. I finished those and then I'm like, I got to go back to like the original series now. So I'm now I've gone back to the original. I watched the best 20 episodes of that. And I think obviously the one that's the famous one is City on the Edge of Forever, which is written oh. by Colin Ellison. So I was reading all about that. And that guy really had his stamp in um, some great sci-fi ideas back in the day, right? Like, uh, Oh, amazing works back then. Yeah. The fact that he wrote one episode of Star Trek and most people consider it the best is saying something about his ability. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> the original but, script is beautiful, too. Um, you can find the original script. I used to have a, a bound copy of it back in the day. Wow. It's fascinating seeing the differences between the production version, which in within, you know a 1960s production budget for TV versus the actual original screenplay. And Harlan Ellison, it's just amazing what he could do for one hour sci-fi television show. The fact that it has a cultural significance after all these years that, I mean, non-fans even quote that episode sometimes. It's, that's a, right. just an amazing career. I, now, I love and miss him in many ways. Yeah, yeah. And because we've been uh, going really down the nostalgia zone and talking about uh, AFI and people we worked with, did you, um, so that episode was, uh, had an uncredited rewrite by DC Fontana. <laughs> wrote many of the great episodes. So DC Fantana was my teacher at AFI. Was she were you Same in my with class? Me. Oh, yes, crazy. yes. she was crazy? my writing mentor. Yeah, yeah. So I like first of all, I'm like, how why was she teaching? She didn't need to do it for the money. She didn't need to she was she just must have been doing it to be in touch with young talent or try to nurture talent or something like that. She didn't need to do that. She had is this huge epic resume. You knew Gene Roddenberry back in the day. She wrote many of the great episodes. Um, do you remember anything about her? She's uh, uh, passed away, oh. unfortunately, now. But um, Oh, yeah. Uh, Dorothy, I, I called her Dorothy. You know, DC Fontana. She, she, was, she was so close to my heart. You know, she was my writing mentor in college. And she definitely helped push my work forward. You know, because she always talked about, like, the overall idea versus the feelings. And one thing she always mentioned was, um, you know, developing the Spock character. You know, she a lot of the qualities that we know today, as far as you know, Spock on Star Trek, a lot of it was developed from her work. So those moments when you realize, oh, you know what? It's those character moments, those beats that feel very real and are universal feelings that we all have. When you add that into sci-fi, that's what makes it connect with the people even better. So she always taught me about emotional beats connecting with those wider world kind of ideas. You, know, you can have those outrageous mm -hmm. futuristic concepts. They still need the human heart to make us understand it. That so, is yeah, true. Just, she, yeah, she wrote the episode where uh, we meet Spock's parents and they all come on the, the so she was the one who made Spock a three-dimensional character and kind of gave him an emotional life with his family, right? Because his mother's human, uh, and his father is, is Vulcan, so the father is like very logical, but the mother has the human emotional side. And so she sort of brought that family dynamic into Spock's character, and I'm sure much, much more. But that episode, she had full credit on. 
Uh, you know, the funny thing is, I, I wish I remembered more about her. I remember that the only thing I remember is that she said that the reason that she used the name DC is because sci-fi was a little bit misogynistic back then. And she didn't want to be known as a, a woman writer. She wanted to just be known as a writer. And so she used her initials uh, to disguise the fact that her name was Dorothy. That's all I remember from her. I don't remember any of her lessons. I'm glo so glad that you remember some of it. Um, oh, that is definitely. A great lesson. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. really makes it's heartwarming because it reminds you that filmmaking in general is about showing humanity um, and different levels of humanity. And when you forget that, that's when you have cold, boring movies. Um, when you actually show the human element and present it as, you know, hey, it's a struggle. You know, this struggle is a universal thing that we all share. It, that's the thing. Spock isn't just, you know, this green-blooded alien with funny-looking ears. He's a person with, you know, feelings. Even though he doesn't want to express them, he has conflicts within himself that every once in a while get a little peek at. And that's just great writing in general and great character. Totally. That's great. Cool. Well, uh, this has been a good trip down the nostalgia zone. I love it. And uh, of course, you know, <laughs> wow. 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 It's wow score time. So uh, we're going to give it, uh, we've got the Terminator thumbs up here. Uh, we'll decide if we're going to give it a, 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 what are we giving on our wow score? Zero being uh, what the hell did I just watch? And 10 being this was the most incredible movie ever. Hit it. What did you give it? Wow score. I have to give it a 9.5. I mean, as far as WoW, rewatchability, um, and still having those, you know, heck yeah kind of moments where you shake your fist in the air because you're like, that was cool. That's the thing I love about this movie. It still feels timeless. It still has a visual consistency. And it's just absolutely wonderful. I, I have childhood memories connected to this because it was my first rated R movie. You know, I was at the mm. theater. It was the slumber party. Buddy's dad brought us all. We had White Castle cheeseburgers afterwards. <laughs> you know, I, it's all connected. So right. I've watched this movie. I, I can't remember how many times. I mean, sometimes a couple times a year. So I definitely would say 9.5. It's an all-time favorite, and it's, it's going to last. Definitely it's going to last. Yeah, well, if, if you're not giving one of your all-time movies, man, that's going to be a tough challenge. I want to know what you're going to give a 10. Give me nothing. Maybe you give nothing. Um, for me, I I think it's just uh, I, it's Arnold at the height of his powers. It's James Cameron uh, at his badass best before he went into the Titanic mode. And I love that. I I'm one of the only people I think on Earth who still loves Avatar. I don't care if it's cheesy. I still love it. But this is like this is like him really still like tough and like badass and kind of like uh, rebellious and cool r-rated cool um so it's got all of that it's a time travel movie with robots i mean you can't get much better the action sequences totally hold up my favorite action sequence in this i think is still um the scene at the beginning when he goes through the mall and that's i guess the santa monica place mall uh before yeah. it just got re renovated and when he when arnold has the gun uh, the shotgun in roses and then he pulls out in slow motion the roses and all that it's like incredible although i do love also the um the dry ice at the end where he uh the uh the liquid metal guy in the dry ice and he shatters and that's really cool too but i think that opening that opening sequence that battle sequence is still pretty incredible in the end i'm giving it a nine uh and the reason is because it's not a movie i go back to all the time it's not one that i have to like uh 
Um, that's not the well of, of movies I go back to, but uh, if I watch it every five or 10 years, I'm always like, wow, that's just like a masterful movie. Um, and I can't really explain why it's not more than a nine other than it's just, I guess, personal, personal taste, personal preference, you know, and it's just, uh, so for it's, uh, it's something that I love and I can watch mastery. I don't have to go back to all the time to watch. And so for that, uh, more than nine. Oh, I agree. As far as the timelessness, um, the classic feeling, I think my favorite action sequence or moment is when the T-1000 drives the motorcycle through the building and jumps onto the helicopter. And, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I still distinctly remember seeing that on the big screen and just going, mm. I've never seen this before. Uh, that's mm. the thing about movies like this and Cameron. Cameron produces things you've never seen before on film. So I always have to give him credit. I always watch his movies because there's always going to be that one moment where he's going to top himself. And that was that moment where he topped himself nice and early. I have to know, are you, what do you think of Avatar? Are you a hater or a lover? I'll be honest. I, 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 I'm a hypocrite. I've watched <laughs> Avatar many, many times when it was on the big screen. I was wowed by, you know, the visuals of, you know, three-dimensionality, of, you know, the 3D goggles at the time. I mean, I, I'm a technology buff, so I ate it up. But in hindsight, I don't remember that much of the movie. It's kind of strange where I realized Avatar was the point that I think it still is the number one movie of all time. I can only remember one or two character names and just a, a vague recollection of it, even though I watched it maybe 10 times. Hmm. Um, so that's the only thing. It didn't stick as much. But I mean, the technology put into it, I mean, he, he pays it forward. So you have to give him credit, even if the movie wasn't a success in my mind, you know, it was successful visually, but it wasn't successful story-wise and you know, my mm. connection to it. The technology put into that movie changed filmmaking once again. So yeah. I always have to give him credit and respect for that. And the next three, I think he's going to try to top himself again. Obviously, that's why it's taken so long, because he's got this new technology that he's developed for the, the new three. So uh, I don't know. I, I'm still I'm still looking forward to it. Uh, in oh, any case, yeah, it's um, going to be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to mention how people can get in touch with you out there in the, in the real world, the meat space world? Oh, yeah. If you ever want to get in touch, um, I'm on Twitter um, at Jonathan Boyce. Uh, my tweets are actually locked. I always accept uh, direct messages to start up new conversations and meet folks. So feel free to reach out and we can start a conversation. Okay, very cool. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for teleporting into this worldcast of Simulation Nation, whether you're with us in virtual reality or 2D, watching the YouTube video like you guys down there or listening to the podcast Spotify or Apple. And remember to subscribe to our Instagram at the Simulation Nation, Twitter at SimNationVR, Facebook and Discord. And if you enjoyed this event, leave it, give us a five rating in all space before we leave. And if you didn't, please don't share the hate. Then join us next week to our talk with ECVR's technical and creative director, Doug Jacobson. Uh, this is in preparation for huge Burning Man, virtual Burning Man events that are going to be happening uh, in all space. We are meeting with uh, Doug next week. And then in a couple weeks, we're meeting with Athena with the creative director and sort of the head of it all. So we're very, very excited to be involved with Burning Man and uh, bringing them into the whole space here uh, for a show. So uh, please do come by next week. Until then, stay plugged, my friends. <laughs>